Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning. Uh, today, God continues to speak to us from the second letter of the Apostle Peter, chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you with wholesome thinking, to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was diluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we said this before, but I don't know that there is any virtue uh, that we've lost uh, in greater uh, in a, a greater speed than that of patience. Uh, so much of our world has catered to our desires to have what we want when we want it. Uh, our phones and our smart TVs and our Amazon shipping speeds, uh, they're all discipling us into believing that we should have what we want when we think we should have it and that life uh, really should function in predictable and manageable ways. Right? All of these things are curating um, a, a life for us at our own pace, the pace that we want. Uh, and now more than ever, I think it's true that we've lost a framework for waiting, finding satisfaction and joy amidst the waiting, and even trusting that waiting is not a hindrance to that joy, but maybe is the actual source of the joy. Now this week we're going to be uh, wrapping up this series, A Public People, which has been a study of First and Second Peter. And in this series, uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've considered what it means for Christians to be a distinct people who live in such a way that their faith stands out in the various uh, spheres of life that they find themselves in so that we might welcome others into experiencing that same kind of faith. And this week, we consider, finally, that Christians are to be a patient people. And I want us to consider a particular kind of patience, a patience that's, uh, that Peter roots in a promise. 
And if I may be so bold to suggest that this patience or lack thereof says everything about what we believe about God and what we expect from this life. So let's take a look at patience by considering three different things. Let's consider what is to come, what is now, and what has already arrived. Okay? Explain what I mean. First, what is to come? So, Second Peter, the apostle is uh, reflecting on what his readers are often thinking about, which is the return of Jesus. This return that Jesus himself had promised was to come. Uh, that happens in several places, but one place that we see is in John 14, where Jesus says this. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus has promised that he will return again for his people. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because of what he promises will occur one day when he does come back. Peter describes uh, some of what will happen in verses 3 and 6. He first starts off by speaking uh, about creation and how God has established creation. But then in verses 7 and 8, he goes on to say this. He says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then later on in verse 10, he goes on to say, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear like a, with a roar. The, uh, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now, what is happening there? Well, Peter, is, he's speaking of, uh, of renewal and a judgment that's to come one day when Jesus returns at the end of time. Uh, but as we read those words, they can certainly sound uh, destructive, and even negative, right? We, we can imagine this scene just being described as a negative scene because it sounds like this coming judgment is one of the destruction of the earth. And while in some ways that might be true, I actually think it's wrong to uh, read it in this way and understand what Peter's uh, describing in this way because it really misses the point of what he's describing, this idea that the world, the earth, is going to be destroyed, and that has consequences for not seeing what Peter's actually saying. One, one consequence, I remember someone, hearing someone once say that the reason why they drove a gas-guzzling SUV uh, and that they don't care what it does to the environment is because in the end, it's all just going to burn away anyway. But the question is, like, is that true? Is it actually true that the entire earth will just be consumed by, destroyed by fire? Well, the key to understanding what is meant by that phrase is actually what he says there at the very end, that the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. There's some uh, older Bible translations like the King James Version that translate that as the earth and everything in it will be burned away. But this idea of laid bare, other translations say exposed, gets at the heart of what Peter's describing here. Because the point is not that when Jesus one day returns, the earth is going to be discarded and destroyed, but rather that the works that are done will be revealed and exposed as evil and worthy of God's judgment. And so one biblical commentator, when looking at that fire, he describes that fire not so much as an annihilating fire, but rather a purging fire, a purifying fire, a fire of renewal, a fire of restoration that will come to the earth. You know, much like a, a purify, like the, when a gold is purified, right, that gold is subjected to intense heat, 
which burns away all the imperfections, leaving nothing but the purest of gold. And so when Jesus returns, all the imperfections, all the sickness, all the evils of the world will be laid bare and burned away, leaving nothing but the purest form of creation, one that has not been seen since the garden, before sin and death entered into the world. And here's why that is such a joy. Because too often, I think when we we think about eternity, what is to come one day, we think about heaven as some distant, uh, ethereal dreamland that where we exist for eternity. And our vision of that eternity is too often shaped by in a cultural imagination than what Scripture describes heaven to be. Because what we see in, in the Bible when speaking of heaven is that heaven, eternity, is not this ethereal, distant dreamland, but this, it's this renewed, restored, purified creation, free from the brokenness and the sin that exists now. The Bible, over and over again, gives us a picture of what is to come on the other side of Jesus' return. And you know what the best picture the Bible gives us about what's to come when Jesus returns is actually the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus, he didn't die and become a spirit that floats off to some distant dreamland. He dies, but then he physically rises again. And so in places like 2 Corinthians 4, Romans uh, 6, speak of the one who raised Jesus from the dead, also raising us from the dead, we're talking about a physical resurrection. Which means this eternity, this heaven that we think about, is a physical world, restored, renewed, purged of all the sicknesses and death and injustices that exist. Christianity is, is not some disembodied faith that thinks very little of the physical world. It's also not, just as a side note, a a humanistic faith that thinks very highly of the current state of the world. Rather, it's a faith that sees the brokenness of the world that we live in as a result of sin, recognizes that that is not the way that it should be, and trusts that the resurrected Christ is accomplishing something glorious, a return to the restored creation, one that Romans 8 tells us, uh, a creation that's yearning for the day of redemption. Right? This is the promise of Revelation 21 that we reference all the time. But it's, it's a restored creation where there's a new heaven, a new earth, where God is dwelling with his people, where he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no mourning, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. For the old things have passed away, the new things have come. This is what we're talking about. This is what Peter's referencing about this coming day. Again, eternity, not some distant dreamland, but a holy city that descends down to us where, where us, where all creation is restored and renewed. It's the undoing of Genesis 3 and creation finally being set free from a world full of sickness, death, injustice, and mourning. This is what Peter is putting in front of his readers because this is what they long for. And this is also very much for us today, something we would long to see and experience You know, we don't have to be Christians or not to want to live in a world with no more sickness or injustice or death or mourning, right? This is something that we all would desire to experience. But Peter also knows that though that is this promise of what's to come, that's very much not what is present now. 
In fact, Peter knows that because this day has not yet come in the time that his readers and maybe even himself expected it to come, despair is starting to settle in for them. And if that was not enough, because Christians are holding to these promises, look at verse 4, something else is going to happen. He says that scoffers will come and say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, people are going to come, and they're going to mock this promise, basically saying, you're a bunch of idiots. He's not coming back. Things are just going to go on like they've always gone on. And that kind of experience, right, those mocking the promise, the, the hardships and suffering that we experience now, all of that will very quickly take us out of the hope of what's to come, and it very much brings us squarely back to the reality of what is here. And so we need to wrestle with how do we think about that coming promise while still here in the now. Right, if a restored creation without sickness and suffering and injustice and death, when Christ returns, is what's to come? What is here now? Well, sickness and suffering, injustice and death. And we all know what that means. We've all felt the sting of all of those realities. We all experience burdens and cares and concerns, anxieties and fears and sufferings now. Wishing, hoping, longing, even demanding that something change. And Peter is saying, I know there are promises of what is to come, but they are not here. And I don't know when they're going to come. And until they do come, Christian, you need to be patient. And you need to wait. Of course, the problem, back to where we started, as humans, and especially humans accustomed to not waiting, we often start questioning the entire premise of a God that if he does exist, has any plan to keep any of these promises, we begin to feel that tension because we are not yet at a place where we can patiently and hopefully wait until that day. But it's impossible, right? We all know that it's going to be impossible to avoid experiencing suffering and or becoming someone who's contributing to suffering. And so as a result of that impossibility, our patience and our faith begin to wear thin. And Peter actually shows us why we get to that point, why we actually are often so impatient for these promises. And there's two things in particular that he points out. First would be this. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. We pause there. So one problem you and I have is simply assuming our timelines and our understanding of times, time uh, ought to be the way that God works. That our parameters and understanding are what God should bind himself to. Right? We are so bound by time and space that we cannot fathom a God who exists outside of that time and space. And so, because we are so convinced that our reason, our understanding is ultimate, we really do often think too highly of our capacity for knowledge and wisdom. And so one reason we don't have patience to believe or trust the promises of God is because we do not have the timeless perspectives that God has. And as a result, we assume that if he is God, 
He should work within my limited sense of time. And so we get impatient. But there's a second thing that he draws out here. He goes on and says, it's because it's not just a time issue. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Slowness. <laughs> that might seem like Peter is just essentially saying the same thing that he just said about time. But I think he's emphasizing something else there. Because not only do we assume that a timeless God must work within my limited time-bound categories, but in assuming that God is slow, there's also, there also seems to be a questioning of his character. Meaning, to assume God is being slow in fulfilling his promises is to assume that he is able to intervene, and he is not. And so as a result, we question if he's actually trustworthy when we know he could be doing more now. So not only do we question this sense of time or have a limited scope of time, we also can begin questioning his character, which is another reason why we can get so impatient. And the reason why I think that's what Peter might be drawing out is look at again at verse 9. He says, not only uh, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, but then he says, as some understand slowness. I mean, how do we understand slowness? I mean, is it fair to say in our regular rhythms of life that when someone is able to move faster, get involved quicker, fix things more efficiently, but chooses not to and drags their feet, we question their character? I mean, that's how we tend to understand slowness. But what if in the delay... God is not dragging his feet, but instead he's accomplishing purposes beyond what we might be able to fathom in the midst of that delay. You know, that idea reminds me of a, of a story of Jesus and Lazarus, if you remember the story from uh, John 11. If you know the story, Lazarus, uh, who was a friend of Jesus, was sick. And his two sisters, Mary and Martha, they, they send word to Jesus about the fact that their brother is sick. But instead of going right away, do you remember what Jesus does? He waits. He waits two days. And in that time, Lazarus dies. And Jesus, when finally arriving, uh, Lazarus has been dead for a number of days. And when Jesus gets to the tomb, Martha meets him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, Jesus, it seems like you dragged your feet. And look at what happened as a result. But then the scene turns, if you remember the story, and Jesus upends all of this by using this situation to accomplish something that no one thought was going to happen. I mean, immediately after this interaction with Martha, Jesus says famously, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whatever, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He says, do you believe this? She says, yes. And then Jesus proceeds to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why did he do this? It's because of what he says later on in verse 40 of that chapter. He says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? In other words, in the delay, yes, Lazarus died. But what they got to see through that death was the glory of God. He was accomplishing something. He wasn't dragging his feet. There were purposes that he was accomplishing in the midst of that delay. 
we see a situation like this. And we can see God being slow as dragging his feet when in reality there was a plan that he has been working toward that far exceeds anything that we can understand. And sometimes that plan, my friends, God's purposes can only be seen and experienced on the other side of death. Now that doesn't mean that we're all going to experience Lazarus kinds of resurrections now. But as one trusts in Jesus, we will see a plan of God, a plan that exceeds our expectations on the other side of death. And my friends, when we cease believing in a God who transcends time and is, also, and is not bound by our concepts of when things ought to be done, right? When we, when we stop questioning the character of God and instead we start to rest in him, we begin to see something beautiful take shape. But the alternative is, if we don't trust him in these ways, we will begin to look for other ways to soothe the pain of the now. We will search for alternative ways of controlling the now as a way to provide ourselves some kind of hope, and we all do it. If we aren't looking to these promises, clinging to them, trusting the Lord along the way, we will find other ways to soothe ourselves. For some, we'll look to creaturely comforts and pleasures of this world. Right? We, will, we will care about curating a life that's free from pain, free from sorrow, free from loneliness and grief. At least we'll try to. And to do so, we might bury ourselves in work, trying to find a sense of meaning. We might pursue the, the pleasures of sex or substances or possessions or the like. Anything to distract ourselves. For others of us, we start to experience a, a sense of hopelessness in the seeming lack of control that we have over our life. And so as a result, we will spend our days pursuing power and dominance as a way of controlling things. Some people, they, they pursue that through politics. Others will pursue it on the streets. If I just hold power and ensure my interests are met, I can soothe the uncertainties of what's to come in the future. For others, we obsess over moralism, ironically. We try so hard to be moral people, not so much because we value morality, but because we assume if I'm good enough, then God's going to owe me. And this is why we can so often have this anger that creeps in when bad things happen to good people. It is because at some level we assume that God owed a life without hardship and pain because we were good. And for others, when we relentlessly and maybe even cynically question and, and cease believing in a God that transcends our understanding. And as a result, we, we get impatient, waiting for his promises to come to bear. For some of us, we just descend into despair. And the sum of it all is that in the here and now, the broken, sinful now, we so often struggle to cling to the promises of God while also recognizing that those promises are yet to come. And that maybe as we wait, God is actually doing something that we could not even fathom. So if that's the case, right, if that's what impatience looks like, what does patience look like? I mean, what does it mean to be patient and wait while the pain and the suffering of the now seem so pervasive? Well, as I thought about that question of patience, Psalm 13 came to mind for me. 
Uh, Psalm 13, it's, it's a beautiful example of what lament actually looks like in the midst of our pain. And it's, it's, a, it's a passage that we do reference fairly often. But the psalm begins with a question, a question that I feel like many of us just feel deeply in our souls. The psalmist says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? I wonder, does any of that sound familiar in the midst of this world in which we live? It's such a real response to feeling like the suffering will never end. And for some of us, we are constantly asking these kinds of questions. And they're good and right questions. There's nothing wrong with asking those questions. But sometimes, we never move past those questions. And if all we ever do is ask those questions, we will lose the patience necessary to persevere until the end where these promises are fulfilled. And the psalmist doesn't just live here. Actually gives us a picture of what patience is. Patience is recognizing this this tension, this longing. But after these questions of lament, after this wondering where God is, the psalmist then ends in verse 5 and says this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. My friends, the patience that Peter is asking of us is one that is rooted in our salvation. As the psalmist in Psalm 13 is showing us, we can cry out and be honest with our longings for what is to come. But if we do not, at some point, move on past those questions and find rest in the promises of God, then too often we'll begin to abandon those promises. Because though we suffer and continue living in a creation groaning to be liberated from the bondages of decay, at some point... We must be able to turn our how long, O Lord, into, but I have trusted your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That, friends, is the patience that Peter calls us to. This is what actually the next several weeks will be like as we step into Lent. We're actually going to process that even more thoroughly. Our series on suffering uh, will be about where we find hope for such a perspective, so I'd encourage you to join us for that. But for now, this is what a patience that perseveres to the end looks like. It looks like having hope of what is to come by resting in what has already arrived, which is our salvation. Let's look at that finally, what's already arrived. Look at verse 9 again. Peter says that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What is that? Pause there. First, this is an acknowledgement that God has not brought that refining fire yet because he desires to save others through repentance and faith. There are those he desires to rescue from that cleansing fire of creation that's to come one day and keep them so that they might experience the purity of a restored creation. Jesus has not yet come out of mercy so that some that he is still pursuing might experience him. And so, 
for some of us, maybe that's us. The fact that this purifying fire has not yet come is because God is in pursuit of you right now. Trust him. But second, what exactly saves us from that coming fire? What is it that protects us from the refining fire to come that, might ex- that, that we might experience the, the purity of a restored creation on the other side? Well, my friends, the protection from that fire is Jesus himself. It's Jesus. It's his life, his death, his resurrection. Our hope for what is to come is actually rooted in what has already arrived, which is Jesus, our Savior. If his, in his life he experienced the, the burden of the sin-filled, broken creation, on the cross, Jesus takes those sinful imperfections in us that would have caused us to be consumed by that refining fire. He takes those things upon himself and in so doing gives us his perfect righteousness so that when the fire comes, we are protected and brought out of the flames to experience the renewal that he brings. And do you know why we can trust that that will be the case? Right, that's a great idea, but do you know why we can actually trust that it will happen? It's because of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus proves that in Jesus, death does not have the final word. Sin will not have victory, and that renewal and restoration are being accomplished This is the power of the resurrection. And when we remember what he has accomplished back then for those who trust in him, then as we experience the ongoing sinful brokenness of this world now, we can have hope for the coming day, the day that is to come. This is patience. We acknowledge the pain, and yet we also remember our God of salvation. And to the point of this series that we've been in, the public people, Christians who grasp this are going to be people who take seriously the brokenness of this world, right? They will understand that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. And so as a result, we then have this opportunity to reflect, even in in a limited way, the coming restoration in the way that we live the words that we speak, the attitudes that we have. Christians who have this kind of patience are not going to be those who get consumed by the pursuits of the pleasures of this world, who get obsessed with the pursuit of power, whether that be in politics or on the street. It's going to be, we're going to be a people that won't be uh, descending constantly into these pits of despair. Christians will be a people of hope, even in the midst of the pain. I'll close with this. As we look to the future, And as we struggle with the present, the place that we are now, I was actually reminded of a verse from one of my favorite hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The third verse of that uh, song wrecks me every time. It says this. It says, Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Let me just stop there for a second. What strikes me about that statement is that as a result of our pardon from sin and this presence that that cheers and guides, right, remembering our salvation, you know how that song concludes? It goes on to say, as a result, there is strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousands beside. Remembering what Jesus has done for you 
resting in the comfort of that work for you is what produces patience and a strength for the bright hope of tomorrow. So my encouragement would be for all of us to look upon the salvation that Jesus provides and that in seeing that salvation anew, we might then be a people of patience that look ahead to the promises that are, that are to come and again to the point of the series to then welcome others into the rest that we have experienced as a result of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you, Lord, that in your mercy, you have kept that fire from coming. In your mercy, you are still calling people to yourself, calling them to trust in the work of our Savior, Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you that you're a God who sees us and pursues us. Lord, we also thank you that you're a God who does not leave us to struggle in the hardships of this world alone, but rather first you remind us of your commitment to us through the work of Jesus, sending of your Son to live and die and rise again for us. And you also give us your Spirit who encourages us with the truth that as we look at what Jesus has done, we'll find hope for tomorrow. And that in that, we can become a patient people who take seriously the brokenness of the world and yet also find rest in your salvation and the promises that are to come. Help us be a people that look upon the work of Jesus and help as a result of our patience be something that draws others to experience the rest that we too experience. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc. 